Chapter Twenty Seven of Marjorie Dean, High School Sophomore by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Twenty Seven: The Fulfillment. The chorus were tunefully lifting up their voices in their initial number, their watchful eyes on Professor Harmon's baton, when the belated princess hurried to her position in the wings. Laurie Armitage had returned to the stage and was instituting a wild search for Constance. Failing to find her upstairs, he had hastened below and was rushing desperately up and down the corridors, peering into the open doorways of the deserted dressing rooms. Only one door was closed. Behind it a black-haired girl awaited a call to fame. He called Constance by name again and again, then receiving no answer he dashed up the stairs, encountering the object of his search at the very height of his alarm. Marjorie Dean stood on guard beside her. She advanced toward the excited composer, saying briefly, Let her alone, Laurie. She's awfully nervous and upset. She has just had a dreadful fright. I'll tell you about it later. Constance cast a reassuring glance at Laurie. She had heard Marjorie's protecting words. I'm all right now, she nodded. I won't fail you. The dorset notes of her opening song, I'm Tired of Being a Princess, brought immeasurable relief to Lawrence and Marjorie as they stood in the wings, their anxious gaze fixed upon Constance. In one of the dressing rooms below, the silver strains came faintly to the ears of Mignon LaSalle. During her interval of waiting, she had been softly humming that very song, confident of the summons she believed she would receive. She had no doubt that her cowardly plan had worked only too well. Knowing Constance Stevens' deep affection for her tiny foster brother, she could readily see a vision of the terrified girl rushing out into the night in search of him, her duty to the operetta completely forgotten. As the sound of that hated voice reached her, she sprang to the door of her dressing room and, half opening it, halted to listen. A wave of black rage swept over her. Forgetting her recent change of costume, she took the stairs, two at a time, and ran squarely against Lawrence Armitage and Marjorie Dean. Marjorie could not resist a low laugh of contemptuous scorn as she viewed the stormy-eyed girl whose unscrupulous plan had failed. The contempt in her pretty face deepened as her quick eyes took in the details of Mignon's costume. The French girl's indiscreet haste to make ready had convicted her. Marjorie had already learned from Mary all that had occurred. It needed this one proof to complete the evidence. Lawrence Armitage was regarding Mignon with perplexed brow. "'That is not the costume you wore last night, Miss LaSalle,' he said with cold abruptness. Scrutinising her closely, amazement began to dawn on his clear-cut features. "'When did you—' With a low cry of mingled humiliation and fury— Mignon turned and ran down the stairs, her slender body trembling with the anger of a defeat born of the failure of her plan and her own betraying haste. 
Gaining the shelter of her dressing room, she gave herself up to a paroxysm of rage that ended in a burst of hysterical sobs. The end of the first act brought a troop of hurrying, laughing girls downstairs. Instead of the alert, self-possessed mignon who had swept proudly into the dressing room that night, those who shared the room with her found a convulsive weeper lying face downward on the floor. "'What's the matter?' was the concerted cry. A good-natured senior took mignon gently by the shoulders. "'Get up, mignon,' she commanded. If you don't stop crying, you won't be able to go on when your cue comes, let alone trying to sing. Mignon's first entrance took place in the second act and occurred directly after the rise of the curtain. The French girl half raised herself at this reminder, then sank back to her original position with a fresh burst of racking sobs. Finding her good-natured ministrations ineffectual, the senior left Mignon to herself and began to change methodically to her peasant costume of the second act, the scene of which was laid in a village and in front of the cottage where she supposedly dwelt. Ten minutes!' was the warning tones of the freshman who was serving as callboy. Still Mignon refused to heed the admonitions of her companions. "'Better call Laurie Armitage,' suggested one girl. "'She can't possibly go on. "'Harriet Delaney will have to take her place. "'Mignon isn't even dressed for her part. "'Where do you suppose?' "'The senior did not finish her sentence. "'Something in the familiar details of the gown Mignon wore "'aroused an unpleasant suspicion in her active brain.' A swift-footed messenger had already sped away to find the young composer, who, with the departure of Ronald Atwell, had taken the arduous duties of stage manager upon his capable shoulders. When the information of Mignon's collapse reached him, he made no move to go to her. Instead, he beckoned to Harriet Delaney, who had just come upstairs, and whispered a few words to her, which caused her colourful face to pale, then turn pinker than usual. "'But I haven't a suitable costume,' several girls heard her protest. "'Go on as you are. Your costume is suitable,' reassured Laurie. But down in the dressing-room Mignon had struggled to her feet. The knowledge that her unfairness was to cost her her own part in the operetta aroused her to action. In feverish haste she began to tear off the gown she wore. Second act!' rang out through the corridor. With a low wail of genuine grief, Mignon dropped into a chair. She heard Harriet Delaney begin her first song. Unable to bear the chagrin that was hers, she sprang up. Readjusting the gown she had partly thrown off, she seized her cloak and wrapped it about her. Then she fled up the stairway and into the calm starlit night to where her runabout awaited her, the victim of her own wrongdoing. It was a happy trio of girls that shortly before midnight climbed into the Deans's automobile in which Mr. and Mrs. Dean sat patiently awaiting their exit from the stage door. Lawrence Armitage's operetta had been an artistic as well as a financial success. 
It had been a standing-room only audience, and the proceeds were to be given to the Sanford Hospital for children. Laurie had decreed this as a quiet memento to Constance's devotion to little Charlie during his days of infirmity. The audience had not been chary of their applause. The principals had received numerous curtain calls. Constance had received an enthusiastic ovation and many beautiful floral tokens from her admiring friends. Laurie had been assailed with cries of Composer! Speech! Speech! and had been obliged to respond. Even the chorus came in for its share of approbation and to her intense amazement Marjorie Dean received two immense bouquets of roses, a fitting tribute to her fresh young beauty. One of them bore Hal Mace's card, the other she afterward learned was the joint contribution of a number of her school friends. Only one person left the theatre that night who did not share in the enthusiasm of the Sanford folks over the creditable work of their town boys and girls. Mignon LaSalle's father had, for once, put business aside and come out to hear his daughter sing. Why she had not appeared on the stage he could not guess. His first thought was that she had told him an untruth, but the printed programme carried her name as a principal. He arrived home to be greeted with the servant's assertions that Miss LaSalle was ill and had retired. Going to her room to inquire into the nature of her sudden illness, he was refused admittance, and shrewdly deciding that his daughter had been worsted in a schoolgirl's dispute in which she appeared always to be engaged, he left her to herself. It was not until long afterward, when came the inevitable day of reckoning, which was to make Mignon over, that he learned the true story of that particular night. It had been arranged beforehand that Constance was to spend the night with Marjorie. Shortly after Charlie had been comfortably established in Constance's dressing room, Uncle John Rowland had appeared at the stage door of the theatre, his placid face filled with genuine alarm. He had been left in charge of Charlie, and the child had eluded his somewhat lax guardianship and run away. Finding the little violin missing, he guessed that the boy had made his usual attempt to find the theatre, and the old man had hastened directly there. Charlie was sent home with him, despite his wailing plea to remain, thus leaving Constance free to carry out her original plan. The deans exchanged significant smiles at sight of Marjorie, Mary and Constance approaching the automobile, three abreast, arms firmly linked. "'Attention!' called Mr. Dean. "'Salute your officers!' Two hands went up in instant obedience of the order. Constance hesitated, then followed suit. "'I see my regiment has increased.' remarked Mr. Dean as he sprang out to assist the three into the car. "'Yes, Connie has joined the company,' rejoiced Marjorie. "'I am answering for her. She needs military discipline.' Three soldiers are ever so much more interesting than two,' put in Mary shyly. Her earnest eyes sought the face of her captain, as though to ask mute pardon for her errors. Mrs. Dean's affectionate smile carried with it the absolution Mary craved, 
and Mr. Dean's firm clasp of her hand as he helped her into the car was equally reassuring. Mrs. Dean had ordered a light repast, especially on account of Constance and Marjorie. She had not counted on Mary, but she was a most welcome addition. Their faithful maid, Delia, had insisted on staying up to make cocoa and serve the supper party. "'Captain,' began Marjorie as the three girls appeared in her room after going upstairs. "'Please let us stay up as late as we wish tonight. We simply must talk things out. Tomorrow is Saturday, you know. "'For once I will withdraw all objections. You may stay up as late as you please.' The three girls kissed her in turn. Mary was last. Mrs. Dean drew her close and kissed her twice. "'Have you won the fight, Lieutenant?' she whispered. Mary simply nodded, her blue eyes misty. She could not trust herself to speak. "'Tomorrow I'll tell you,' she faltered, then hurried to overtake Constance and Marjorie, who were halfway upstairs. The talk lasted until two o'clock that morning. It was interspersed with laughter, fond embracing, and a few tears. When it ended, Marjorie's dream of friendship had come true. Mary had more to say than the others. She confessed to writing the letter of warning that had so mystified the basketball team. "'I knew you wrote it,' Marjorie said quietly. I found it out by comparing the paper it was written on with a letter I had received from you. I was so glad. I knew you couldn't be like Mignon, even if you were her friend. I was never her friend, nor she mine, asserted Mary with a positive shake of her head. I was jealous of Constance and was glad to find someone beside myself who didn't like her. I never knew the true story of the pin until Jerry... She paused, colouring deeply. So Jerry told you. That is just like her. She is the kindest-hearted girl in the world. Next to you two, I like her best of all my schoolmates. Marjorie's affectionate tones bespoke her deep regard for the stout girl whose matter-of-fact ways and funny sayings were a perpetual joy. If only I had listened to you and Connie in the first place, Mary sighed. I've spoiled my sophomore year and tried hard enough to spoil yours and there's so little of it left. I won't have time to show you how sorry I am and how much I care. We will begin now and make the most of what is left, proposed Marjorie gently. Then she added, Jerry didn't know all that happened last year. I would like to tell you about it. Please do, urged Mary humbly. Marjorie told the story of her first year in Sanford, frequently turning to Constance for confirmation. When she had finished, Mary was silent. She had no words with which to express her utter contrition. "'Now you know our sad history,' smiled Marjorie, with a kindly attempt at lightening the burden of self-reproach Mary bore. "'But neither of you has told me how Mary happened to find Charlie tonight.' reminded Constance. I am anxious to know. This is the first time he ever ran so far away. 
Oh, no, you forgot the night he went to Mignon's. Mary broke off shortly, red with embarrassment. She had not intended to speak of this. Constance's positive assertion had caught her off her guard. Went to Mignon's, was the questioning chorus of her two listeners. Mary was obliged to enlighten them. I wondered if he ever told you, Connie. He promised he wouldn't, she ended. And he never told, the little rascal, was Constance's quick reply. No one except the maid knew it, and you may be sure she never said a word. It was that night that I came to my senses. Mary smiled a trifle wistfully. I saw myself as others saw me. You thought I was grieving over Mignon, Marjorie. But I wasn't. It was my own shortcomings that bothered me. Now I must tell you about tonight, and then you will know everything about me. Constance received the account of Mignon's attempt to supplant her in the operetta with no trace of resentment. I ought to be angry with her, but I can't. She has suffered more tonight than I would have if her plan had succeeded. Poor Mignon, I wonder if she will ever wake up. That's hard to say. At any rate, she did some good, even if she didn't intend to, reminded Marjorie. I'm going to try to keep my junior year in high school free of snarls. There is no use in mourning for the past. Let us set our faces to the future and be glad that we three are done with misunderstandings. Marjorie Dean, high school junior, is going to be a better soldier than Marjorie Dean, high school sophomore, has ever been. Both Constance Stevens and Mary Raymond smiled at this earnest resolve. In their hearts they felt that Marjorie Dean need make no vows. She stood already on the heights of loyalty and truth, steadfast and unassailable. How fully Marjorie Dean carried out her resolve and what happened to her as a junior in Sanford High School will be told in Marjorie Dean High School Junior, a story which every friend of this delightful girl will surely welcome. End of chapter 27 Recording by Ashley Jane End of Marjorie Dean, High School Sophomore by Pauline Lester